You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. I'd like to welcome new viewers and listeners who may be checking out COVID Calls this week for the first time. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. If you're wondering what COVID Calls is all about, be sure to check out our introductory episode on Podbean. It's also linked on the Facebook page. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word, send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, July 16th, there are 13,589,273 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 13,382,020 cases yesterday. Of those, 3,499,771 are in the United States. That's up from 3,448,625 yesterday. There are now a total of 137,420 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 136,699 yesterday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline, Herbert Wolf Melgar, broadcaster and festival organizer dies of COVID-19. Author is Luz Lazo, and this was published June 29th in the Washington Post. Herbert Wolf Melgar, 56, a broadcaster who organized major Hispanic festivals in the Washington region and galvanized the Salvadoran diaspora to stay engaged in the future of their home country, died May 9th of complications from COVID-19. Melgar co-hosted the well-known weekly talk show Salvavision, an internet platform he used to discuss political and social affairs in his native El Salvador, reaching thousands of Spanish-speaking homes in the region. He was a creative mind, his colleague and co-host Alvaro Mendez said. Loved music and films. He was most passionate when he was behind the mic. In every show broadcast on Facebook Live, Melgar would begin by acknowledging people listening, responding to questions and comments from followers, and sending birthday wishes. Then he would turn to hours of discussion about politics in El Salvador and the country's millennial president, Nayib Bukele. Melgar began his career as a sound engineer during a tumultuous political time in El Salvador. As a young man, he traveled the country with an entourage of musicians going from one town carnival to the next, even at the peak of the decade-long civil war in the 1980s. He wanted to bring happiness 
to the most remote towns of the country during a time when it was super dangerous. They had to travel with large signs identifying themselves as musicians, his younger brother Marvin Melgar recalls. Herbert Melgar worked with such iconic Salvadoran bands, including Orquesta Guan Bambu, Espiritu Libre, and La Raza Band. In the 1990s, musical events brought him to the Washington area, where he stayed in search of economic opportunity, Friends said. He joined one of the largest Salvadoran communities outside El Salvador. He lived in the Washington area for nearly 25 years, most recently in Prince George's County, Mendez said. Melgar also founded Imperio Radio, another passion project that he tended to around his Salvavision gig and his full-time job designing advertising spots for local Latino businesses. Along with Mendez, he promoted musical and cultural events within the largely Salvadoran community of Washington and helped organize Latino festivals, including the festival Guanaco every fall in Hyattsville. His connections with the music scene in El Salvador were instrumental in facilitating the visits of popular Salvadoran bands to the area, Mendez said. On the talk show, Melgar was a strong critic of Bukele, most recently blasting him for enforcing a strict quarantine during the COVID-19 pandemic, which Melgar said had left many poor Salvadorans stuck at home without food. That guy has never picked a shovel, he said in a recent broadcast. He only knows to give orders. In his last few shows, Melgar, along with Mendez, used the Salvavision platform to discuss the disproportionate impact the coronavirus pandemic was having on immigrant workers in the Washington region and to urge listeners to stay home during the pandemic. The videos reached as many as 70,000 people in the Washington region and beyond, Mendez said. The only place where we can be now is where the family is, Melgar said on the air in April before he fell ill with the coronavirus. If you're in quarantine, I hope you're having a good time. If you're quarantining with your family, well, enjoy your children and other relatives. He had planned to return to El Salvador, his brother Marvin Melgar said. His wife and two adult children live there. I'd like to turn to my discussion now, and I'm really excited to have this discussion with my two guests today, and let me introduce them. Let's start with Jason. Dr. Jason Von Metting is an associate professor at the University of Florida and a founding faculty member of the Florida Institute for Built Environment Resilience. Before moving to the U.S., he spent six years at the University of Newcastle, Australia, where he established the Disaster and Development Research Group and work with communities in the Asia-Pacific region using participatory methods to study disaster risk. In the past five years, he has developed a focus on communicating science to non-academic audiences, writing blogs, magazines, and newspapers, and creating video content also through his podcast, the co-hosts with my second guest, Disasters Deconstructed, the podcast. My second guest is Dr. Ksenia Chilotina, She's a senior lecturer in sustainable and resilient urbanism at the School of Architecture, Building, and Civil Engineering in Loughborough University in the UK. She's originally from Russia, and before moving to the UK, she lived in China, where she got her master's degree. Her research explores the processes of disaster risk creation and politics of disasters, especially under the pressures of neoliberalism, urbanization, and climate change. Ksenia uses her work to draw attention to the fact that disasters are not natural, 
sure we'll discuss this today. Cassinia is also co-author of a textbook, Disaster Risk Reduction for the Built Environment, which appeared in 2017 with Wiley, and she's the co-host of Disasters Deconstructed. Jason and Cassinia, thanks for making time to come on COVID calls today. Hi, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Good, Good to, to see you both. Yeah, it's great. Uh, thanks for making time. Um, I want to remind people you can get questions in, and I'm sure we will have some today. Um, just gonna I'm getting a little feedback on the. There we go. Um, remind people you can get your questions in today. Um, you can just put them in on on uh, YouTube Live in the chat, or you can put them up using Twitter. If you want to just be sure to tag at us of disaster. So let me ask um, a question that I've been asking everyone. I'll start Cassinia with you. Um, where are you calling in from and what's the COVID-19 situation there? Um, well, so I'm calling in from Nottingham in the UK, you know, the city of Robin Hood and Sheriff of Nottingham. That's what we're famous for. Um, so with COVID situations, as of today, we have had 292,552 confirmed cases. Um, and this includes um, 642 new cases today. And sadly, we have 45,119 uh, people um, dead, including 66 deaths today. Um, and so in Nottingham, we had 1,193 deaths. Um, but there's been a massive outbreak in Leicester, which is just 20 minutes from Nottingham, kind of by train. Um, so Leicester is now on the second lockdown. Um, yeah, so we don't know what's going to happen. You know, it's not, it's not great. Let's put it that way. Jason, let me um, bring the same question to you. Where are you calling in from and what's the COVID-19 situation there? Hey, Scott. So, hi from Gainesville, Florida. I'm in the global epicenter, it seems. We're um, setting new records all the time. And um, yeah, I guess the, the US is in some ways the world's Florida, right? And I mean, I... My feeling is that it's a lot of this is on the so-called leaders in this state, and it's not a wonder that hashtag DeathSantis is trending on Twitter. So if anybody hasn't been over there, check out DeathSantis. Um, I mean, at, at this time when when the, the cases are are really skyrocketing here, and the experts are are recommending shutdown. Instead of that, we see hospitals filling up. We see Disney reopening fully and other theme parks um, and, and generally minimal so, uh, distancing requirements. So, so we, I mean, I know that it's funny and all to kind of laugh at Floridians, but um, my feeling is that it's, it's a bigger problem than um, Floridians, right? It's, it's a governance failure. And personally, I've, I've, in trying to um, think about what to do in fall with my kids in school while we're while we're living in Florida and, and the kids are at public school. So we, we've been following the um, the school board decisions and they've uh, yesterday they voted to put the start date back by a few weeks um, as well as mm -hmm. as make masks mandatory in, in the classrooms on the school campus. So we're just trying to, to figure out what to do because I mean, at, at this point, it's a lot of people have been um, trying to work from home with their kids for many months, 
And now we are being forced into a position where we need to either continue doing that or, or just, you know, put them back into public school in the middle of, you know, at the epicenter of a pandemic. So difficult times here in Florida. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And um, people may not know when you said DeSantis, that's a play on words of the governor of, of Florida, right? Ron DeSantis? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, people may not know. Um, so I want to ask you also about maybe what's been happening with social justice and protests there. Jason, to you, has there been much going on in your community in that regard in, in the response to the George Floyd murder? Yeah, I mean, as someone who moved here 18 months ago, I have um, talked to people who've, who've been uh, in Gainesville a lot longer and they said the, the response in terms of organizing, getting out and protesting has been uh, much, much stronger and more visible than anything they've seen before here. Um, and, you know, as, as a, a recent arrival to the, I know, it's a, it's a college town, you know, a lot of, um, the people who are going to the protest are a little bit clueless about um, about organizing. And, you know, some of the things that I noticed at the protest here is like, you know, young um, white people taking selfies and that kind of thing. So that's irritating. Um, but but it, it was it was really well organized and um, I was I was very impressed with the depth of, of knowledge and wisdom um, shown by the organizers here. The the really interesting thing for me is like the tension between the relationships that people within the community here, especially in East Gainesville, which is um, predominantly black, um, had the the close relationships there are within the community and the police in Gainesville, and so. The tension there, where where even the organizers have relationships with the ch police chief, say, and with um, and with you know officers and their families, and so watching that play out and the nuanced discussions that are happening, um, I think are really healthy. But um, it mm. it certainly doesn't. The protests don't look like a lot of other cities in the United States. Ksenia, mm. can I ask that? Same question of you in terms of what might be happening there where you are at social protest. Has it been very visible? Um, it has, particularly kind of right in the beginning, um, you know, because UK has quite a history uh, of slave trade, right, which and colonialism. Um, and so Black Lives Matter um, movement has definitely reacted to what was happening in the US. Um, but as you can imagine here, it was slightly different and that, you know, the, the police is different. Um, so all the protests that have happened have been peaceful um, to an extent, you know, there were a few um, incidents in London, uh, but even then uh, it was kind of in single digits. Um, so we had a protest here in Nottingham um, and it was all very civilized, you know, if British can do something that's cute and kind of stay away from each other in our personal spaces, uh, we finally kind of <laughs> can use that idea of personal space. And so, yeah, lots of people um, came and it was uh, nice and quiet. But 
the reason it was so well organized in Nottingham was because we have a brilliant MP here. She's um, uh, her name is Nadia Witom. Uh, and she's a labor, young, really young labor MP. So she's really active and she kind of does lots of stuff in the community. And she does a lot for BME community as well and works with them very closely. Uh, and of course, I think the biggest thing that happened in the UK is that removal of the um, Edward Colton statue in Bristol. Um, that's then started this yeah. whole uh, removal of statues that remind people about slave trade and colonialization. And I think that was that, that was brilliant to see. I don't think anyone expected um, to see that. I, I thought that was extraordinary. And I think it's something, you know, Americans may be tuned into in sort of uh, abstract way, but to really see that we're talking about bringing down statues, not just in the American South, but also in the North in the United States mm. and also in the UK. That's really powerful because it, it really it, shows the sort of global scope of the system uh, that was created. Yeah, yeah. And the symbolism, you know, of that kind of, I guess, of the of that Bristol statue is that then the, um, the activists threw it in the water. Um, for me, that was the strongest, you know. And I, um, yeah, I kind of maybe hoped that it would remain there, right? Just for everything and everyone that have been thrown in the water. Um, but of course, you know, <laughs> they wouldn't be allowed to do that. So, so Ksenia, let me ask you, um, I enjoyed reading your, your bio and, um, you know, really enjoyed listening to your podcast. Can you give us a little bit of behind the story? Like, how did you find yourself in the pathway to disaster research? Uh, thank you, Scott. Well, <laughs> I was talking about this with Jason today. Um, the kind of the practical story is... Um, it's pretty random. As, as many postdocs go, you know, there is a postdoc opening and there we go. We all need a job. So we go for it. And But intellectually, it was um, a little bit more logical. So um, my first degree was in political science and international relations, particularly focusing on Chinese-Russian relations. Um, and that's how I ended up in China. So I then moved to China and lived in China for a couple of years. And so when I studied in Russia, in the school and also through my university degree, I mean, climate change wasn't the thing, right? It still really isn't the thing now uh, and definitely wasn't in the late 90s. Um, and also we had the subject called nature and environment or something like that, and I failed it. So you know, you're talking to a person who kind of managed to fail nature and environment and geography, in fact, absolutely terrible. Um, and so I never really thought about kind of disasters or climate change or anything like that. Um, but of course, political science kind of gives you a lot of foundation in terms of theory, right? And critical theory. And when I came to China and needed to work on my master thesis, I got really interested in uh, visual propaganda that Chinese party, communist party uses, mm. particularly when it comes to ecology. So everywhere, you know, if you've ever been to China, you see this kind of wonderful uh, communist posters. They're beautiful. And they tell people not to litter, for example, you know, not, or to respect trees and kind of stuff like that. And I was just so curious about that. And so I wrote master's thesis on that. Um, and um, I was then offered a PhD here in Nottingham. I didn't know what PhD was, kind of Russian education system. It's completely different. Um, and I came here. And ended up in a department of civil engineering and kind of an architecture and built environment, which was a little bit unexpected with political science background. Um, and so I then was interested in building regulations. So I was interested in policy. So you know that podcast you proposed about fire and building regs. I'd listen to that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> any any day I'd listen to that. Good. <laughs> I love building regulations. Good. 
And so, you know, but then it kind of all came to me that actually the political science and the build the regulations and the policy and the built environment, right, they, they all sort of come together. And so when that postdoc position happened with Lee Bosher, Ellie, shout out, <laughs> Jason knows him really well. Um, it was a position in on a project which did something to do with resilience, basically resilience and security and disasters. And that is when it clicked. And I was like, right, so this is what disasters are, right? So it's not just this kind of natural event that we were told um, to look out in the geography class. Um, actually, there is something more to it. And I think the more I thought about it from kind of city point of view, built environment point of view, I started asking myself, so, you know, if we have building regulations, then why do still buildings fail, right? Like, why do still people die? Um, so why... Why are building regs and all the policies are so rubbish? And I guess gradually that's what led me to where I am now and everything that comes with this, you know. I, you know, this week with the hazards meeting, it's been an opportunity to read a lot of, of bios and talk to a lot of people. And I can't think of a field that has more different entry points than disaster research. Thank you for sharing that, that story. Jason, I want to ask you the same question. What's your entry point into disaster science? It's interesting, we were discussing this earlier. We, we had some ideas for a research project to try to um, investigate this because it's it's uh, so true that people have all these entry points. And um, so for me, from, from about the age of 10, I wanted to be an architect. And so my, my secondary school kind of pathway, I, I got into all the courses I want, I could to further that aim and develop skills for um, pursuing a, a career in architecture, and I um, and so I went to went to architecture school in Northern Ireland in Belfast, and it was during and I, I went and worked um, in in practice for a year as well, and during my postgraduate studies, um, I had a had a chance to do a research thesis. So um, there, was, there was like a sign-up sheet up on the wall and it said, uh, it kind of had a list of professors and what their interests were. And so I was like reading through the thing and I'd never really thought about disasters before at all. And I was just in my own little world designing um, utopias. So I um, saw the, <laughs> saw the sign-up sheet and, and I was, um, very conscious it was it was september 2015 or 2005 sorry 15 that would make me young so uh 2005 hurricane katrina um aftermath right and i saw on the sign-up sheet a professor who's interested in extreme events and, it, and the, the impact of extreme weather on buildings and on on structures mm. and so i was like mm -hmm. well as as someone born in the united states i was born in chicago grew up in Ireland. So as someone born over here, that was kind of fresh in my mind, been watching the news. And I thought, oh, I'll go and have a chat with this guy about what he what he um, envisages in a, in a research project. And that got me interested, that got me reading, and I, I decided to work with him, Professor Lukman Noydeli. And we put together a, a proposal, and it, it had me out in New Orleans by November 2015. 
And so that was my, my first introduction. And I went out there as a designer to, and I was very focused on like surveying buildings, looking at what happened to different types of buildings and different types of materials and structures uh, when storm surge came in or when there was high wind or when there was flooding, right? And so that's kind of what I went out there to do, but I ended up talking to people, which happens if you go anywhere <clears throat> where people have experienced um, these, kind of, these kinds of things. So I ended up talking to people right. and um, introducing interviews into my research um, in a kind of bad hoc way. And, and that developed over the time I was there on the Gulf Coast and in New Orleans. And so I came back and completed another year in architecture school and my, my design became, my design thesis, one year thesis project became focused on New Orleans. So I went back out there and did um, kind of flood, flood resilient buildings um, in New Orleans. And, and yeah, after that, I, I went, continued working in practice a little bit, but got a, my, my supervisor encouraged me to apply for a PhD place and funding. And it worked out and it was 2007 and I, I had the choice between the research pathway or going back into practice. And I think I made the right decision. Um, so I, I went with the PhD program and right. the, my PhD work was um, initially intended to be design-based, but ended up being more into um, management. And so it was about project management and that got me even more into talking with people using qualitative methods. Um, and then, yeah, and, and the rest is history. And like, I, I moved from Ireland then to Australia, got more and more involved in working on the social side of disasters. So I was there for six years and then, um, came over to the United States to um, join the party. It's um, really interesting to me too. I'm, I want to ask you both. Um, since I know you have strong opinions on the term natural disaster, which is going to be our way into our discussion about your approach to science communication. But I think it's also particularly relevant that you both have a lot of experience with structures um, and come from that, that side of it. And, you know, I'm an, I'm a historian, but I, I worked for a long time in the history of building codes and, and the history of technology. And it does, you know, you do come up with, um, if you come from that direction, you come with, um, a certain understanding of the way that policy and the material world interact, I think. And, um, at the time that I was doing that work and listening to you both talk about your own sort of trajectory, you hadn't been thinking about disasters, and I certainly hadn't been thinking about disasters. But then when you start to actually ask, well, why do things go wrong? You realize all of the things that have to go right with structures and all of the things that have to go right with all of the codes and policies that go into, into protection. It's so Byzantine. So all right. So I want to, well, first I should remind people you're listening to COVID calls and you can get your questions in using uh, YouTube live chat. I'm talking with Jason von Metting and Ksenia Chimutina and having a great discussion that we're going to talk now about science communication. So Ksenia, to you first, um, natural disaster. Why can't I use it? What's wrong 
with that and let's use that as a way to begin talking about disasters and language. Uh, well, everything is wrong with that, right? <laughs> okay, so the I guess for me, what the, the the biggest problem with the phrase natural disaster is that people use it without thinking what it actually implies, right? It's the implication of using the term. So when we say that disaster is natural, we de facto <clears throat> blame in nature, be that earthquake or a volcano, right, or a river kind of that brought flood on the loss and destruction. Um, it is the same with kind of when disasters are called the act of God, right? So the responsibility is put on something or like a deity, right? And so we cannot do anything about it. And because we as humans can't do anything about it, well, why bother? Um, and this is where the problem is. If I think the moment we realize that disasters are not natural, we start... Um, questioning who is accountable, right? And who creates disasters? And why do we end up with them? Why Why does a natural process like a flood has to turn to disaster? Does it have to turn to disaster, mm. in fact? And I think, you know, so I, I've never, um, I think the only argument I've ever had about this kind of the, the semantics of the phrase is actually with academics. And it's saying, well, you guys are just kind of picking on words, you know, semantics doesn't matter. Mm. We had so many conversations with established academics who um, keep telling us, well, um, it's a convenience, Tom, right? Like, if you stop saying natural disasters, if you just say disasters, people wouldn't understand what you're saying. Uh, but from my experience, every single time we uh, somebody asks us, you know, so what it is you're doing, and once we explain why disasters are not natural, uh, people understand within kind of half a minute. Um, but it's somehow it just is so ingrained, and um, we just don't want to kind of to step away from it. Um, yeah. that mean when we talk about COVID-19? You know, I think COVID actually helps us to kind of to expose that there is nothing natural about disaster because um, whilst the media was saying how COVID is a great equalizer, right, and we're all sort of affected similarly, well, I think very fast we realized that actually that is not the case and it's the most marginalized and the most systemically oppressed that we're dying um, the fastest and also first, right? So it's... Um, uh, BME population, right? So the, the black and the minority ethnic. So it's in the US, I guess, it's the black people and the people of color, right? It's diff different word than we're using. Um, it's um, the elderly people, particularly those who um, were on their own. Um, it's uh, the key workers were exposed, whose salaries are the lowest, right? And who kind of have to work really long hours and then they were affected. And I think that very fast um, exposed how system relies actually on people who are not respected and therefore nature has nothing to do with this right it's us as society who doesn't treat everyone equally who doesn't respect everybody equally and that actually as a society we're extremely greedy um, and there are so many people profiteering on death on the virus and on the kind of everything that comes with this and so hopefully if COVID doesn't convince convince people that disaster is not natural then I don't know what would it's a good example, I think, Jason, glad to see you back here, that um, uh, the importance, you know, when we get more specific with the with the language, 
really kind of what's at stake in a broader sense around science communication. And I guess that's my question for you. I mean, um, you know, what can go wrong, maybe what can go right, but what can go wrong when we're imprecise in our, when we talk about science or when we talk about disaster? That's a great question. So like, on, on thinking about how the expression natural disaster is used to avoid responsibility, um, I think I think that COVID is a is a a, a great um, time for us to explore this further the impact of language because um, we I mean I was in the the hazards workshop and somebody used the expression vulnerability to natural disaster and I thought that's just such a I mean we could unpack that for hours because. Because it, it kind of misunderstands what vulnerability is, it misunderstands what disaster is, um, but it's a it's a commonly used kind of collection of words, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but if you think like, where we need to talk about what what vulnerability is, is vulnerability naturally occurring? Like, is is vulnerability created by decisions that we make? Why are disaster impacts dis- discriminatory? All of these things are, are questions that are easier to, um, or, or people are more willing to listen to these kind of discussions in the midst of a pandemic where they're like, this is so unfair, the way this is playing out, right? <laughs> so I think it's, it's, a, it's a perfect time for those discussions to be had. and. In terms of, um, and I think that's that's like at the core of why we do science communication about disasters as kind of, it's pretty central to what Ksenia and I both do. And and really, like, usually we're, we're talking about, um, you know, disasters that people, we maybe have a idea of what a disaster is as a long-term process of accumulated risk and... Um, encountering a, a hazard, which is um, sometimes very quick or rapidly um, occurring. And so for some people, that's kind of hard to, to grasp, like, oh, how was the risk created over time? And it's kind of, it takes a while to to talk about it. But then you, you have this, like, um, this environment now where there's a disaster unfolding over a long period of time and everybody can see those, um, right. those systemic systemic risks just mounting and mounting um, in our societies due to injustice and inequality. And so, science communication just becomes so important. And I think I think a lot of writers are doing a great job right now. And they're really they may not be disaster writers or journalists. But they're they're writing about the stuff that we talk about all the time as disaster scholars about how risk is created. Um, so I'm really encouraged by the way that that people are writing about uh, risk, which is created in society and by society by the decisions that we make and relating it to COVID. I've been impressed too, and I have to say that it, maybe in the last few years 
seeing journalists in the United States become less um, hesitant in like, for example, connecting weather events to climate events, just getting a little bit more um, confident in describing and talking about, like, say, disaster victims as such, but also as victims of structural racism, for example. I, I've noticed that as a shift in, in journalism. Cassidia, let me ask you, I mean, in a sense, then what you're really talking about is that any discussion of disaster, if I have you right, is also a discussion of power. Absolutely. And it's a discussion of inequality. That's a lot to take on, right? I think a lot of people who are kind of historically been drawn to disaster stories, they like them because they're very cinematic and there's good guys and bad guys and <laughs> and that sort of thing. Why are you trying to why are you trying to ruin that good time of of uh, no, but but seriously, is is that what's at stake here? Is that we should have been talking about power all along instead we were getting lost in kind of high-flown talk about natural disaster? Um, yes. I, I don't think we've ever been lost. Um, it's just that that narrative, that discourse has been hidden because it's uncomfortable, um, because it really kind of requires bringing lots of disciplines together, right? So um, I'll, I'll kind of unpack this a little bit. So first of all, for me, um, the reason we start talking about disasters as events, right, that kind of occurring over the historic events. So every disaster has started in the past, right? And the future disaster has already started now. We, we know that, we understand that. And I think now we're talking about it a little bit more because we are starting to work better together between disciplines. We still have a massive issue with the way we are trained in silos, right? So uh, if I'm a social scientist, then I go and do my social science research methods. If you're an engineer, then you go and do your kind of experiments, right? And the science, natural scientists do quantitative work. And we still don't know how to talk to each other. But I think gradually we're, we're learning, right? Maybe we are sort of forced to do that a little bit more. And maybe people are a bit braver um, in exploring each other's boundaries. Um, and that helps. So all of a sudden you kind of start questioning, well, what you're saying makes sense, right? And I think um, the fact that um, maybe all the political upheaval that we've seen in the last kind of few years, you know, really helped us to um, express our thoughts in terms of power and then translate them um, when, you know, onto disaster. Uh, to me, Haiti earthquake is probably the best uh, demonstration of kind of how disaster is about power. Uh, because it showed that the government that has been kind of um, rotten with corruption and that and you know that didn't ha happen because the people were bad that that were the kind of the result of colonialism right and they um, later on even after the independence the kind of the rulers were still um, not the the people of Haiti um, and so that showed how power really unfolds and we can still unfortunately see ten years on that the power. Um, it's the powerful who win and it's the powerful who made the money and people without power um, just don't even have a little bit of resources to kind of to get together. Right. Because to, to be stronger, you need to have a little bit, a little bit of kind of push. Um, and then secondly to that, I think um, we have been hiding power really, really well um, because of the language we use in disasters. And again, they're much more critical thought now in that sense. And that, um, you know, in the in the kind of 80s, when this uh, 70s, 80s, and then 90s, when the idea of neoliberalism like really took off, right? Um, we all know about the projects of the World Bank and the um, IMF, 
how they went to African countries to make African countries developed, right? Because that development has been the key and the development is all about economic growth. And with that came this idea of resilience. And, you know, I, I mean, I find it fascinating how such a simple word as resilience, right, that has been used kind of by in natural science and psycho- psychiatry and kind of medical science for years. We then uh, took it and just absolutely used it and abused it. And so um, from sort of neoliberal point of view, the countries had to become resilient because that was the key for the economic development. And if and resilience means good, right? If you're resilient, you're good. And therefore, if you're not resilient, you're bad. And nobody wants to be bad, right? Because everything is binary. And so the system and the World Bank kind of keep throwing the austerity measures and whatever else they can find, right, into, into marginalized population. And people catch this and yet remain productive because we want to be good. We want to be resilient. And this narrative, just it, it's wonderful. It hides power so, so well, right? Um, and we, 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 I think we really need to talk about this and we need to unpack this. Jason, uh, okay, so now we've got natural disaster and resilience, powerful words in common circulation that hide either intentionally or probably often unintentionally. Um, they seem to hide deeper histories and power dynamics. What other terms and phrases should we be alert to, or how should we be talking about disaster if we're not going to use those, or if we have to use those more precisely or critically? So I think this is, a, this is uh, difficult because people are competing for funding, people are communicating to different audiences and using language that they think is going to be understood, not necessarily mm-hmm. the language the language which is the most precise from their expert opinion. Um, so it's it's not a not a simple task. I think thinking back to the natural disaster example, I would like instead of of um, just saying disaster, if you if you want to speak to a certain audience, that understands natural disaster in a, in a certain way or expects that expression, you know, you, it, you have an opportunity to deepen their knowledge of what that means, of what a disaster is. So you can say something like so-called natural disaster, right? And then you can explain why you, you, why you said that, why you said so-called, um, you know, because that's, that's the core message. That's the core of, that, that lets you get to the root cause of disaster. If you say natural disaster mm-hmm. without any critique of that um, language, you're missing an opportunity to actually talk about what's going on, right? Um, mm-hmm. And generally, you see that happening and in the work that we've done. We saw that most authors are using it just simply as a buzzword. And so authors, even that fully understand the social construction of risk, right. are using it as a buzzword because they know that it's expected. It's expected by reviewers, it's expected um, by the public maybe. So, so I think that's, that's a problem, but, but also, um, I mean, you could, we could go through all of the words in, the, in our Anglophone um, conception of, the, of these ideas. 
And this is something we're working on at the moment. Maybe Ksenia would say more. We're about to submit a paper about language translation. Yeah, so we've got this um, really exciting project. I mean, it's been, it's it's slightly random. So we were just curious, you know, because we both work internationally mainly. Um, and so every time there is a research project, there is always either resilience or vulnerability or everything, right? So you kind of, you name it, we have to use those terms to get funding. Um, and we started like asking many of us um, ourselves, well, so when you work with the community, so we usually work with local researchers who then do research, right? Um, and we every single time there would be a problem with translating resilience or translating vulnerability or even translating the word disaster. And we kind of start thinking, right, if, if this doesn't translate well, what does that mean? And so we did a very simple um, exercise on Twitter. We just asked people saying, can you, can you just, you know, ask um, your colleagues and friends, how do the six words, so it was vulnerability, capacity, resilience, hazard, risk, and disaster, how does it translate into your native language, right, into your local language? And then um, if it doesn't translate really well, or, you know, whatever word you use, can you actually tell us, describe that word back to us in English, not just translate, but describe back? And people absolutely got involved in that, and we now have 54 languages. And so across these languages, none of these words really translate. Right. And so we are trying to research something in communities and in the countries where the words that we are researching are pretty much meaningless. Mm. Um, and therefore, what we are really doing is kind of, well, reestablishing our own message of, again, power, right, and privilege in that um, we are talking about things that we think we need to be addressing and that we think that are problematic in a language that we have chosen to address it. In, and I don't mean English, I, it, I mean English, but also the kind of the language of power, right? That's the language of expertise. Um, and then many communities now do use those words because they know that academics and NGOs come and use them. But right. in real life, they're completely meaningless, completely meaningless. Um, yeah, so we worked with um, our friend Neil, who's a linguist who kind of helped us to really frame it in theoretical um, terms. Because again, translation and linguistics and disasters don't really work together very well, apart from um, uh, translation and emergencies, but not that kind of bigger, uh, longer term. And yeah, hopefully we'll get a paper out of it soon. But it, it, it's been so much fun. It's great. So it sounds like a lot more than a paper. It sounds like a whole <laughs> subfield of what we work on. And I think yeah. there's so, I mean, there's so yeah. much in what you were just talking about. In part, it's the unsurprising act of forming an entire linguistic enterprise that we use to describe oppression and inequality and then deploying it in the absence of a participatory process to find out how people would themselves describe that. And it, to me, it also really underscores this absolute necessity that we have interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary and international teams because I could Im totally imagine a process like that and that no anthropologist on the team, all Americans on the team, and we're trying to understand what resilience means in sub-Saharan Africa. And nobody bothered to figure out what sorts of terminology, what sorts of metaphors, what sorts of temporalities were in circulation and use in that place. And not just so that you don't do additional harm and damage, but so that we can actually ourselves learn and do a better job in our own communities. I mean, that's what I'm 
that's what to me is so provocative about what you're describing. Yeah. It's a full praxis, which takes into account the power of language. Mm, absolutely. And we don't consider that at all. We don't think if, about if our could, language. If I could. Yeah. No, I, I'm wishing I talked with you about this 12 months ago. Somehow I could have weaseled my way into your paper. Okay, Jason, what you were going to respond to that, though. I just wanted to, to um, quote from the paper that we, we just finished. I think it's a good opportunity to quote a part that I really love from the paper. Because we were talking about like the way that when you translate from, from English into non-Anglophone languages, that because it's a dominant scientific language, it tends to kind of impose itself on the, the language. The non the non-Anglophone language. And when you when you translate back the other way, you do you do the opposite. You kind of defer to the dominant language, right? So anyway, in the conclusion, I love this, I love this um, phrase because we we said that we need to um, create space for non-Western perspectives to enter and enrich Anglophone discussions, facilitating genuine dialogue rather than a one-way quasi-imperialist imposition of ideas. I liked it. <laughs> you like it? <laughs> I like it, but I also, uh, we just kind of cancelled um, 50 minutes of our conversation, how we, we were promoting clear language, and then we went for a quasi-imperialist um, conversation, but, you know, academic talk, what can I say? <laughs> You're listening to COVID calls and uh, you can get your questions in on YouTube live chat or on Twitter. There's actually getting some interesting comments up on Twitter right now. People are listening and finding some real value in the way that we're talking about language. And of course, people are excited in your, in your work. And to me, that's a good segue to talk not only about your research, but to talk about what you've undertaken as science and disaster communicators. So, um, Let's talk about disaster deconstructed. Either one of you want to, um, maybe first of all, before we get the origin story, but just kind of find out like, what do you aim to do with the podcast? What is its what is its sort of main goal? The, it was it was kind of a a process that that um, got us there. I mean, to some degree, starting to write in more journalistic style for the conversation for magazines, starting to do more public um, outreach and engagement and talks to people who were non-academics was part of the process. And, and so then in, in 2018, we had a, had a discussion about um, a podcast that would be, be different than anything that was out there in that it would try to get at the root causes of disaster and try to make some of the really complex concepts that we deal with accessible to people who are non-experts. And so right from the start, it has been a, a podcast that was made, is, is created with the public in mind. And we've been very fortunate to, to have a lot of listeners who are experts and a lot of listeners who um, are researchers or are practitioners. But 
and we're we're looking for new ways to reach the public. And one of the ways that we have done that is by making our, our or focusing our second season, which was which ran from January until um, April, I think, making that about stories of disaster. And and we're continuing that into our third season, which is just launched at the start of July which you're on our first episode of our third season, Scott, which is a great episode if anyone wants to check it out. Um, And so we're we're trying to to reach the public um, with with these messages that we've been talking about. Where where is risk really coming from? Why are are people disproportionately or discriminately affected by disaster? And these are the, they're kind of the things we keep coming back to almost every week. And certainly in season three, we're, we have a big focus on different ways of communicating. And in the coming weeks, we're, we're talking to different journalists and musicians and artists. And um, so it's going to be really exciting in season three to open up that space to talk about different ways of communicating. Ksenia, just to get your perspective on what it's been like to work in the, in the podcast, who did, you, uh, who did you check with first? How did you get permission to do this sort of thing what do you, who do you where do you apply to i mean I, I found this myself when we started doing this i'm like shouldn't there be some oversight what a, <laughs> but you know but but no it's a bit of a a moment of opportunity there and you've led the way um yeah, how did you begin to shape it uh yeah this, this is kind of free for all right anyone who wants to do a podcast can do a podcast um i think well, as Jason said, we were kind of keen, you know, on communicating the, the idea differently, not just an academic way for a while. But we, I think maybe in 2017, when we we're in global platform for disaster risk reduction in Cancun, um, that's we kind of, we really started thinking about the way that we talk about disasters. Um, and there was a bit of a corridor activism and kind of all sorts of things happening with no natural disasters campaign. That's when it really picked, it, picked up. Um, and we also realized that actually, there is so much we can say, right? And we don't really have a platform to say that Twitter uh, doesn't quite cut it. Um, and I, I mean, podcast was Jason's idea completely. Um, the, the, the way I got involved, he called me at like 6 a.m. saying, do you want to do a podcast? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> what else is there to do? And, and there I was. But we, to us, it's a collaborative pro- project. So we really work together well. Um, and I think... We, we do work together well, not just on podcasts, because we're friends, right? It sort of, it comes naturally, but we discuss everything, not in that, okay, today we're going to discuss this, right? It doesn't work like that. There's never an agenda. We, it's a very kind of fluid, very natural process where we sort of know what we want to achieve, right? So we know that, for example, for season two and three and maybe four, we want to talk about stories and narratives because that is, there is so much to cover there, but how we would do that and whom we would talk to, we don't necessarily know. Sometimes um, it's just a conversation. Sometimes we meet people, you know, sometimes we kind of see somebody who knows somebody who is really, really exciting. Um, and sometimes just events that kind of make us think that, okay, maybe we should cover this perspective or that perspective. Um, so it's it's a very natural process for us. Um, and our discussion, as you know, Scott, is not particularly structured. So we usually send guests um, some idea of what it is we want to talk about, uh, but we don't script. We used to, our first episode uh, is so scripted now, it's kind of quite painful to listen to it. But I think we learned how to talk um, 
I haven't learned how not to interrupt each other yet. Maybe it's like next 50 seasons we'll learn. I'm really bad at it. Um, but yeah, so, so it's, all, it's all really about kind of being able to chat and being able to think. But also I think it's about being able to listen. I mean, I have learned so much in the last three seasons mm. uh, that I don't think I would have mm. ever learned so much by just kind of reading academic papers. It's amazing. My my brain has just kind of expanded and I have so many more questions. And I, I think this is making me a better academic. This is making me a better researcher. Um, yeah, it's 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 absolutely amazing. It's it's a development, personal development project, I think, first and foremost. Thank you for sharing that perspective on it. I think it's something that um, for myself, you know, writing, when you come up in an academic tradition, um, like in the humanities and social sciences, often the expectation is you have to go out and learn everything on your topic and then you sit to write. And you and that writing is just a is, is just a download, which I think unfortunately also leads to the um, the lack of style in a lot of academic writing. Whereas if you treat writing as a as a form of of thinking and as a form of exploration, then it becomes joyful painful, joyful. Um, and it's, you're describing the podcast in the same way. And I wonder, Jason, is that also something that you, you both sort of connect on this issue about using the podcast as a, as a mode of research? Because I think for a lot of people, that will be surprising that the expectation is, no, you have to have mastered this issue before you could possibly interview someone about it. But that's not what Ksenia is saying. No, I totally agree with, with um, both of you. And, and the, the process is so, so central to um, growth and learning. And I, I think that's, that's kind of reflected probably in the, the way that both of us um, approach education as well, in that we don't need to be the expert on everything. We don't need to be the fan of knowledge, um, but you invite your students into a, into a learning space, a learning collective. Um, and, and you, you know, you'd be vulnerable and you say, and if, so, if someone challenged you on something, you say, oh, I don't actually know that, but this is a way you might find out the answer and tell me about your experience on that. And you don't, you don't have to be the expert all the time. And I think, like Senya said, the, the learning process that uh, we've had the opportunity to go through by, um, talking with all these incredible people over three seasons. We've recorded our whole third season now. So over three seasons, um, it's just, it's, it's phenomenal because um, just thinking about what you can learn from reading a paper, um, you don't have the opportunity usually to ask questions, like to ask follow-up questions about something you read in the paper. No, but you have somebody um, on the line in an interview and they say something, and you're like, whoa, that's so exciting. And then you can ask a follow-up question to e go even deeper. Right. And that's that's just an incredible opportunity. And I don't think it's something we like planned it or even understood that would happen. Um, but it's something really exciting about what we do. That's a great insight that that also the in a world where seemingly we can be connected however and whenever we want to. There's still so many limits on our ability to connect and on the time that we make for connection. And I think that's, again, one of the things I really like about what you're doing is you're giving that time for the longer 
explanation. And for those that back and forth, we've got a comment here from local to global disaster support. Little kudos to you both. You guys are the real deal. It makes us better to listen to you. It's always oh. nice to get a comment like that. Tremendous. Um, yeah, it's great. So, um, you know, we had the opportunity on Sunday to the three of us co-facilitate for the hazards workshop. It was a great honor, um, to do that. And, and, um, we talked about the challenge of researchers interacting with professional communicators, journalists in, in different forms. There was a theme that came up that I've spent I've been thinking about it ever since then, and it had to do with how to extend the platform. So part of what we're talking about here are the challenges that academics like us might face, some of them logistical or material, some of them just like un, um, psychological, like can I take the leap to write a blog post or to write an op-ed or maybe to do a podcast. Um, but then there's that that maybe that that challenge of how do we go to the next stage, which was suggested in our conversation that maybe the next stage is really extending the platform to those to non-academics and people who don't have the ability to share their knowledge and share their insights. And that the podcast, these kind of social media platforms are really a way to do that. I just wanted to, we're almost up on time actually, but I wanted to brainstorm with you both a little bit about that. If you had any thoughts since Sunday? It's hardly any time, but you know, is that something that's been on your mind about the possibilities of this medium to really potentially change the way we do disaster research in a more fundamental way, a more inclusive way? Jason, can I ask you that first? Yeah, sure. So one thing that comes to mind is we've thought for a while about um, having um, reports from the field, you know, and bringing, bringing stories from those who, who are, you know, researched. Um, we would hope in, a, in moving forward in disaster research that those who are researched become the researchers, right? And we that certainly encourage, um, you know, more citizen science and, and, and um, you know, community-controlled and centered research. And so I, I really feel like the podcast is an opportunity for us to bring stories directly from people who have the knowledge of that place and of that experience. And so um, I'm, I'm really excited about work that we're doing up in Port St. Joe in the Panhandle, which is a, a photo voice research. Um, and I'm really looking forward to bringing some of the, the data from those interviews and, and, and making space on the podcast for those stories from local people to go out, because I think that's a, a, that can be much more powerful than any story I tell. Yeah, totally. But also, I guess, I, I think it would be fantastic to have non-academic, non-kind of non-practitioners, right? So not, not us um, on the podcast. And we, we're really trying to do that because... I think even if we choose one issue, say COVID, right, and we invite different groups of people to talk about it, imagine the perspective we would get, right? Imagine if we talk to children about COVID. Imagine if we talk to, I don't know, key workers, right? Imagine if we talk to people who are homeschooling and working at the same time, and maybe those who spend um, quarantine in a kind of five-star hotel or on the yacht. I don't know. 
whatever, right? But just unpacking this, the same topic from different perspectives would have given us as academics the lens that we would never get otherwise. I, I, I would love to do that. But I guess um, getting to that step, yeah, it, it takes it takes guts. It's difficult. It's just like doing research, right? We don't want to go into the community and just interview people. And that is it, right? Because that's extractive. Right. And this is the last right. thing we, we, we should do as researchers. We should, we should never do that. Um, so we, I think we just need to kind of think how, how, how does that then benefit community? Who, whose voices are we amplifying and what is the reason for that and what is the benefit to those people? And I think if we can find the answer to that, it'll be so much, um, so exciting and just so, so cool to do. So um, I just want to get a last question in for each of you. And Ksenia, let me ask you first. Just, this is a quite extraordinary disaster that we're living through in so many different ways, uh, simultaneity of the global experience and the, the pace of it and, and so many other aspects of it that have been remarked upon. So as a researcher, what are you finding yourself most attentive to in COVID-19? What are the new things that you're learning things that have been surprising to you? How is it changing you as a researcher? I think as a researcher, it really allowed me to maybe reflect more on what is important in the society. You know, it just kind of reconfirmed some of the worries maybe and concerns that I had, um, but also gave me hope in that more, more people have become aware of what it is we're doing and why we're doing that. And I think... What has also become really important for me in that hopefully as a research community, we have realized now that we cannot work in silos. We cannot work on our own. You know, uh, even if we're from the same discipline, it's we should work together. Um, it, it's better to be a team, right? We can achieve so much more. We can benefit um, so many more people. Uh, but at the same time, we cannot rely um, on a system that is underfunded, um, that promotes certain messages. So we kind of we need to to again if we are together we can resist that system and we can we can become better right we can we can become better researchers we can become uh, better human beings and yeah so that that is kind of my reflection from from COVID. Jason, what have you been learning either as a disaster researcher or, or, or learning about yourself as a researcher through this this COVID time? Well. Some people may find this uh, surprising, but I feel like I'm, I'm becoming more radicalized to um, to go to go deeper in in the analysis of injustice and inequality in society as the really being at the core of the risk that we experience unequally. And so, but to echo what Ksenia said, I think. It also makes me a lot more hopeful because the the situation people have been put in, especially in this country, has has created you know these these kind of cascading impacts, and and people are on the streets demanding change and the you know showing the best in society and that people care for each other, that people care for those who are most um, impacted by this and who are most impacted by the everyday disaster um, that they live through, which might be poverty, might be 
racism. You know, those, those are things that people are living through every day. So um, I, I just feel hopeful because so many people are, are saying we've had enough. Tomorrow, my guest on COVID calls will be Fallon Samuels Adu, and we're going to be talking about economic recovery. She's a tremendous scholar based at the University of New Orleans. Please do join me for that. And I really want to thank my guests on COVID calls today, Ksenia Chimotina and Jason Von Metting, the co-hosts and creators of Disasters Deconstructed. And you can check that out. I believe all of the episodes are available on Podbean. Am I right? And That's probably right. anywhere else you can get podcasts, I would imagine. That's right. Check out those seasons. They're in their third season. Ksenia and Jason, thanks a million for your time today. As usual, just great to speak with you. Thank you so much, Scott. It's been great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Scott. Okay, stay Thanks healthy, everybody. everybody. See, See you later. At 5 o'clock tomorrow. Thank you.